We turn to Psalm 67 today. Out of all the Psalms, I said, I'm so glad I got some. That's a good Psalm I got, you know, when it was assigned to me. And then I stopped and thought, wait, wait, what would have been a bad Psalm? What would you have thought? Like, oh man, I got that Psalm? I mean, no. They're not good as I walked in earlier this morning with Jerry Roberts. He was saying, they've all been good. I went, yeah, you'd expect that. I mean, they're all inspired by God. They've all been useful. As Paul told Timothy, all of the Old Testament was. It's useful, and it's certainly been useful to the people of God through the centuries and useful for us even today. I want to look at it in, uh, in three parts, not related like to a typical sermon or a big Bible lesson, but as you might approach it, doing your own study of Psalm 67, and as I approached it, doing my own study of Psalm 67. Many of you are familiar with these three parts to a Bible study, to my own inductive search through the Scriptures. I begin with observations, just making sure I'm understanding the words that are used, the syntax of the grammar, may have to you know, ask some questions from it, like I don't understand what that historical reference is to. I need to look it up in a Bible dictionary or something. So I'm just making all these observations that I can about the text. Then I obviously have to move to a second step, which is interpretation. I've got to put all that together, having looked at the grammar, having looked at the history, and looked at the context of the passage, I've got to come up with what do I think is the interpretation? What's the right understanding of this passage. Why was it written and what's the significance for us? Oh, I've sort of slipped into the third step now, which is what's the significance for us? What is the application of this? Because if Paul says all scripture is God-breathed and is useful, how is this particular part of scripture useful for my life today and in the days to come? And how do I need to be applying it so that I'm not just a hearer of God's word using my ears, but I'm also a doer of God's word and not just being foolish like the person who's got eggs all over his face still and nobody at the table will tell him, you know, like, are you going? but then somebody does tell him, say, you got egg right all over your face right here. He goes, hey, thank you, brother. That's really helpful to know. And then doesn't do a thing about it. You'd worry about somebody like that. So that's what James says we're like when we're hearers, but we're not doers. We're not putting it into practice. So we need to make sure we get through all three parts of this uh, study of Psalm 67. So let's begin with uh, observations. And as I look at Psalm 67 and read it through, I realize we, we need to make a few observations. So let's do that. Let's read it one more time, and then let's see what we see. Psalm 67, to the choir master with stringed instruments, a psalm, a song. May God be gracious to us and bless us and make his face to shine upon us. That your name may be known on earth, your saving power among all nations. Let the peoples praise you, O God, let all the peoples praise you. Let the nations be glad and sing for joy, for you judge the peoples with equity and guide the nations upon earth. Let the peoples praise you, O God. Let all the peoples praise you. The earth has yielded its increase. God, our God, shall bless us. God shall bless us. Let all the ends of the earth fear him. The grass withers and the flower fades, but the word of our God shall stand forever. Amen. 
All right, I, I see three sections in this psalm as I look through it, and uh, always in the observation stage, you're, you're basing on your own observations. You're trying to see where do the paragraph breaks occur? What, what, uh, how, how do I structure this particular psalm? And if we're smart, we'll always check it against a commentary or two. Uh, now, if we don't have time for that, don't go to the commentary first without making your own observations. No, I need to make my own observations, but I'm smart to check with other people who have studied this a lot more diligently and over a longer period of time than I have. They may know Hebrew. They may have taught this psalm for six years in a class on Hebrew poetry. And so, yeah, I think I ought to listen to their opinion. Not that it's inf uh, infallible, but it's still, it's useful, it's helpful. So, good, after checking with a few others, too, they, they seem to find three parts here, too. Not everybody, other people divide it up differently, but, but there seem to be the three sections. Verses 1 and 2 uh, have, are demarcated in some way. We'll talk about how in a minute. Then verses 3 through 5 seem to be bracketed by the repeated refrain. Verse 3 and verse 5, the same thing. Let the peoples praise you, O God. Let all the peoples praise you. Verse 5, let the peoples praise you, O God, let all the peoples praise you. So those brackets form an inclusio that seem to set apart the center section of the psalm. And then the final part of the psalm, verses 6 and 7. Uh, that would make sense. Now that's, again, not the way everybody does it. That's not even the way the ESV translation seems to suggest it. They seem to make the breaks uh, at, at a little bit other places. They they uh, make a break with that word selah, which I didn't even read. Why didn't you read that? Because none of you knows what it means. And I don't either. And so why read it? I, the only thing I've heard is a, it seems to be a direction in reading a psalm. It's in a bunch of the psalms. Um, but it may mean pause and think about that. So I did pause briefly there, but we don't know exactly what selah means. So I don't know how much weight to give it, and since we don't know a lot about it, I don't think we ought to talk a whole lot about it. That makes me think about the earlier part, too. I'm sure you've seen a lot of these things uh, before here, the, the to the choir master with stringed instruments, um, those different uh, directions that come in the superscription, what we call the superscription of the psalm. Um, those things, too, we, we're not altogether exactly sure about all of them, but we do know um, some about them that they're, uh, they're telling us more about the psalm than we might otherwise have known. For example, uh, Selah, I already mentioned, 71 times in the psalms. It's probably a musical marker, but we don't know exactly what it means. To the choir master, we find that 55 times in the psalms, and also in Habakkuk 3.19. Its precise use is unclear, but it shows it's getting to somebody who's in charge of the music. So we're going to turn that over to Calvin or whatever. We want that to be incorporated in our worship in the uh, church in Jerusalem. Uh, with stringed instruments, that's referring to the harp and the lyre, the two of the stringed instruments that were well known in Israel. It probably means by having that musical direction, I don't want the percussion and the wind instruments in this particular song. And then uh, a psalm is a designation that's given 57 times in the Psalms. It probably refers to a song. So song would be the more general, psalm the more specific. And the psalm refers to a song that is to have musical accompaniment with it. So 57 times. 30 times in the Psalms that a song has been a more general term. Uh, and then 
there are eight times in which we have it exactly the way it is here, with a psalm first and then a song. Um, so just a little housekeeping out of the way. You may have asked those questions as you're, again, you're reading through. You're wondering, are these superscriptions inspired by God? And I'm of the school that, yes, they probably are. They're very ancient. They're probably there from the beginning of the collection. So, yeah, we can learn from those. And that's especially helpful in those um, psalm superscriptions that tell us something about what David's life circumstance was when he wrote it. Uh, but these three sections seem to fall out on uh, the fact that they have three different subjects. So that's my clue, too, as to why you take one and two together, three to five together, six and seven together, three different subjects. In the first section, may God, so it's God that is the subject. May God be gracious to us and bless us, that his way may be known on the earth, his saving power among all the nations, or your way may be known on the earth. So God is the subject. In verses 3 to 5, it's the peoples that are in view. Let the peoples praise you, O God. Let all the peoples praise you. Or we could, just to make it, again, more parallel, may the peoples praise you, as opposed to the let the peoples praise you. Other translations have may the peoples praise you. So may God, verses 1 and 2. May the peoples, verses 3 to 5. And then may the earth yield its increase. May the earth, the ends of the earth, hear him. So the earth is the subject of verses 6 and 7. Three sections, three different subjects. That might be... Uh, a good way to structure the psalm. And then you're making observations, and you're just reading it through, and you realize, I, I can't do Bible study. I mean, this is my first time ever trying this. I'm, I'm reading through this psalm. I just became a believer a week ago. I don't know what this means. Yeah, you do. It's not rocket science. It's just a poem. It's poetry. Oh, poetry was my worst subject in high school. Okay, don't freak out. Don't worry about it. Just see what you can learn here. And often one of the best things that we do in order to make observations is just to ask questions. I don't know what's that mean. What's that mean? What's that mean? I don't know why do you put that in there. Why do you use that word? Why? That's what keeps us fresh and helps us not just go, yeah, yeah, I've read that before. Yeah, yeah, I read that. Ask questions. I guarantee you that no matter how long you've been studying Scripture, if you'll start with that step of just making observations about the text, you'll find some surprises even in familiar passages. Well, I'd never seen that before, never noticed that before. I'll give you an example. Psalm 51, you all have looked at, I'm sure this year in here. I remember Sandy preaching on that in Amen Bible study just a few years back. Psalm 51. How many times have we gone through Psalm 51 when David confesses his sin with Bathsheba and all that? Oh, I know it, I know it, I know it, I know it. I was well into my ministry before it dawned on me that what I had said for so many years was not accurate about Psalm 51. I didn't say it necessarily in connection with Psalm 51, but I'd often pray it. Lord, restore to me the joy of my salvation. I've kind of lost my joy. I mean, restore to me the joy of my salvation. I knew I was taking that right out of Psalm 51. No, you weren't. Yeah, I was. No, Psalm 51 says, restore to me the joy of your salvation. It does? Yeah. Well, I never, I just... I'm familiar, familiar, familiar. No. Look at the text with fresh eyes and see what it says. So, surprises here. Psalm 67. May God be gracious to us and bless us and make his face to shine upon us, that your way may be known on earth. Your, what? what? It ought to be, may God be gracious to us and bless us, make his face shine upon us, 
that his way may be known on earth, his saving power among all the nations. Why does it flip all of a sudden from his, in verse 1, to your, in verse 2? That's unexpected. That's a little odd. Why, why that? In fact, it's so odd that in some translations that are pretty free with the text, they say, well, we need to amend the text. We change the text slightly. They flat out change it. The New English Bible uh, follows an ancient uh, Hebrew translation, um, uh, a commentary, a Hebrew commentary on Psalm 67 that changes it to his. So they change it. Well, that's convenient, but no, I think we need to stop and take a look at that. Why does the psalmist change from third person to second person? At least it says this is personal. This is this is a prayer. I'm praying this to you, Lord. I'm praying this to you. It's of use, uh, and in the discussion questions, I've suggested this as uh, one thing you might want to do, just looking through. What is the most repeated word um, in your translation of this psalm? Might be significant, might not, but you can, again, anybody can do that. I've only been a Christian for a month or a week. Fine, you can still count. How many times does God show up? How many times does Lord show up? Zero, by the way, for what it's worth. How many times you? How many times his? How many times us? How many? You don't count every word because a lot of them are just used once. But the ones that you've said, oh, I saw that one before. I've seen that. You count them up, and you realize that 15 times in this short psalm, we read either God seven times, or your six times, or his two times, 15 times. That's twice as much as the next competitor. It's a prayer. This is about our relationship with God, and God is the central focused subject of this psalm. So, and in every verse of this psalm, there is a reference to God. So I want to say this is, a, this is a prayer. This isn't just a didactic or a teaching psalm, an exhortation. It's a prayer. And recognizing that, I'm going to push, push on through. So that's a surprise. It's a surprise that reminds me this is personal. We're reading this psalm in the presence of God, before the face of God. Speak, Lord, for your servant is listening. Open my eyes. Help me. Bless me, Lord. I need your help. And I'm asking that for the reason and for the sake that you might use me to be a blessing with others. We'll see more about that in just a moment. Uh, other surprises. There are connecting words that help us see the connections between verse 1 and verse 2. That They're tied together by these conjunctions, these uh, words that will start a new clause. For example, verse 1 and verse 2. May God be gracious to us and bless us, make his face to shine upon us, that, in order that. There's a result clause. So that your ways may be known on earth, your saving power among all the nations. That's where we get that familiar expression, we are blessed to be a blessing. It's a reference to Genesis chapter 12, verses 1 through 3, where God calls Abram out of Ur of the Chaldees and says, I want to take you to a land that you don't even know about, but in your seed, in your offspring, Abraham, all the nations of the earth will be blessed. Those who bless you will be blessed. Those who curse you will be cursed. No, I will bless you that you may be a blessing to all the peoples on the face of the earth. It's that, that, it's the purpose of God's blessing of Abram. It's God's purpose of his blessing for Israel. It's God's purpose of his blessing for us 
that we might not just hoard it like the, re- the Dead Sea that has no outlet, but know that we would let it flow freely through us, that the blessings that God pours out on us might extend to our neighbors, our families, the people that we're friends with, the people that we just bump into in our spheres of influence, that that blessing that has come to us might flow to them as well. So, wow, that's an interesting connecting word. That, blessed, so that you will be a blessing. There's another connecting word that we find in verse 4. Let the nations be glad and sing for joy. For you judge the peoples with equity and guide the nations upon earth. Because you judge the peoples with equity and guide the nations upon the earth, let those nations be glad. Let them sing for joy. Let the peoples praise you. Let all the peoples praise you. Why? Because you judge the peoples, all the peoples. Some people look at that word, peoples. Who talks like that? Oh, yeah, I was at the Amen Bible study. There were lots of peoples there. No, there were a lot of people there, but there weren't lots of peoples there. But that word is used because it seems to be the best we can do to come up with people groups, with ethne would be the Greek word, uh, goyim, the nations. It's talking about not families, not clans, not tribes, not, not even, it's talking about all the different peoples, those that are distinguished by a common language, a common culture. It's the peoples. So all the different peoples on the face of the earth, may they praise you. And why would they do that? Because um, God judges the peoples with equity. He guides like a shepherd the nations upon the earth. Peoples and nations are used there as synonyms. And then verse 6. Wait, I don't see a connecting word. The earth has yielded its increase. God, our God, shall bless us. God shall bless us. Let all the ends of the earth... No, there's not a connecting word there. That's because you're reading the ESV. If you're reading the NIV, you would see a connecting word there. It says, then the earth will yield its increase. God, our God, shall bless us. In the King James Version, it says, then there. In the New Living Bible Translation, it says, then. Now, the ESV and the NASB and a number of other translations don't have a connecting word there. And the Hebrew is not clear that there's a connecting word there. So you can understand why translators might have approached it differently. But the connecting word shows that there is a connection, that the, the point of view seems to go future in verse 6, having been past tenses all the way up until then. And we see that reflected even in the ESV. God, our God, shall bless us. God shall bless us. So looking forward into the future, why will he bless us? Um, because then when the peoples are praising him, then he will pour out his blessings on us, for we will have fulfilled our mission. We will have done what he asked us to do, and the earth will be full of the knowledge of the Lord as the waters are um, full of the sea, or as the sea is full of water. So our mission will be accomplished at that point. So we're going to look ahead at that point. So there may, there may not be a connecting word there. I think there is in order to see the flow of the passage, uh, verses 1 and 2, one section, a blessing. The blessing is so that we might be a blessing, that the nations might hear, verses 3 to 5, and then verses 6 and 7, that we might be a blessing so that God would be praised all over the earth. Everyone will enter into his worship with joy because of he, he will continue to bless us 
and all the ends of the earth will fear him. We'll come back to what that means in just a moment. All right, then one further surprise uh, in verse, uh, verses 1 and 6, it's the us. You know, it went from his to you in uh, verse 2, so we were surprised by that. But look at the pronoun us that figures so prominently at the beginning and at the end. Not in the middle, but the beginning and the end. May God be gracious to us and bless us and make his face shine upon us. Verse 6, um, God our God shall bless us. God shall bless us. Let all the ends of the earth fear him. Uh, and then verse 6, bless us uh, too. So we've, we've got a lot of us's coming, and that again is to show us, show us that this is personal for us. Uh, as one commentator put it, it's as though by God using this, or the psalmist using the us, he's trying to show that the benediction that's so clearly alluded to in this psalm, you know, Numbers 24, uh, no, number six, 24 through 26, and you've heard this benediction if you've ever been to church practically, uh, the Lord bless you and keep you. The Lord make his face shine upon you, be gracious to you. The Lord lift up his countenance on you and give you peace. That benediction clearly lies behind verse one. You're going to see the same things repeated. May God be gracious to us, bless us, make his face to shine upon us. It's clearly an allusion to that blessing that Aaron and the high priests in Israel were to pronounce over the people of God every time they came together. They're to stretch forth their hands like this. Why that? We'll see that in a minute. They stretch forth their hands like this, and they say over the heads of all of Israel, the Lord bless you and keep you. The Lord make his face shine on you, smile on you. The Lord lift up his countenance on you, look you in the eye, look up, say, I see you, and give you peace. That's what he's doing there. And so that's the illusion right here. And the psalmist is saying by including us, it's not the Lord bless you and keep you. He's saying the Lord bless us. The Lord bless me, as we'll see at the end. That this has an application for you and for me. It's not generic. It's not just for ancient Israel. It's for us. So when we read the us today, we need to know, yeah, this is for us. Not just Old Testament Israel. This is for us today as well. All right, so let's uh, go back to interpreting the psalm. What, what's it all about? What does, what does it mean? You know, this is a good time to pause and to look back and to see, well, they're, they're following me here. I have no idea what the slides look like. I'm just taking it on faith, and uh, that's, that's good. Uh, well, verses 1 and 2, that first section where the subject is God, those verses show us the baby beginnings of blessing. Blessing is the theme of the whole psalm, and here we see the baby beginnings of blessing. If we're going to look at this word bless, we need to find out in Scripture, where does it begin? Where is the first time that this word blessing occurs? And we don't have to look far. We go back to Genesis 1, we start reading, and we find that when God had created the heavens and the earth and everything that is in them over a six-day period, he looked at, and have not 24-hour necessarily, not eight, we don't need to get off on that. We have different views, that's fine. Uh, but over... 20, uh, six different periods by which he divides this up, and he looked at it, he made human beings on that sixth and climactic day, and he blessed them. He said, be fruitful, multiply, replenish the earth, and subdue it. This is looking back then to Genesis 1 and the promise of blessing. God had good intentions when he made this world. This world is under a curse now because of Genesis 3 and the sin of Adam 
and sure Eve too, but Adam was the captain of the team. He's the one that got us into this mess. And because Adam said, my will be done instead of thy will be done, we've got a lot of curses out there in the world. But thanks be to God, that blessing that God intended in Genesis 1 will come again. We'll see. It's not the end of the, of the road for us. There's going to be blessing again. So, starts with Adam. Blessing then flows right through Genesis as we look at Abraham. Genesis 12, 1 to 3, I already referred to it. Again, there's got to be, a, there's a clear reference to the blessing given to Abraham in Genesis 12, when in verse 2 it says, bless us so that we might bless the nations. Bless us so that we might be a blessing. Clearly, Psalm 67 has Genesis 12, 1 to 3 um, in mind. And then, Numbers 6, 24 to 26, I've already told you that too. Clearly, that is in mind of the psalmist also. Uh, a psalmist not named David, for all we know. There are 73 of the 150 psalms are psalms of David, but not this one. Or we're, not, we're not told it's not written by David. But what, whoever the psalmist was, that psalmist understood um, Aaron's priestly benediction lay behind um, Psalm 67, verse 1. So baby beginnings are uh, seen in verses 1 and 2. And then those baby beginnings, by way of the Great Commission, are going to end up in cosmic conclusions to the blessings. So the Great Commission. Why do I call verses 3 to 5 the Great Commission? And, and what do you mean by the Great Commission? Well, by the Great Commission, I think many of you will know I'm referring to Matthew 28, 19 and 20. Many say the last words that Jesus spoke, his marching orders for the church. Um, All authority in heaven and on earth has been given unto me. Therefore, go and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit, teaching them to obey everything that I've commanded you. And lo, I'm with you always, even to the end of the age. So, go, make disciples. A slightly different form of that Great Commission is found at the beginning of the book of Acts, where Jesus tells the twelve, before he ascends to the Father's right hand, uh, that it's not for you to know the times and the seasons as to when I'm coming back, but you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem, where we are right now, in all Judea, the area right around Jerusalem, in Samaria, the area just to the north of Jerusalem, and to the uttermost parts of the earth. And that verse gives us our outline for the entire book of Acts as we see the concentric circles extend from base of operations in Jerusalem out to Judea to all Samaria and to the ends of the earth. So that's the Great Commission. Is that really in Psalm 67, verses 3 to 5, or did you just put it there, David? It's there. It's there. I, I'm going to argue it's clearly there. And the way that I know that it's there is because it's elsewhere in the Old Testament as well, and the psalmist is, is leaning on that elsewhere. In Exodus chapter 19, we come to the peak of the book of Exodus, and that peak is named Sinai. As the people of God get to Sinai on their exodus out of Egypt and their journey onto the land of promise, um, they are met at Mount Sinai by the Lord God, who's going to give them the Ten Commandments, give them their clear identity as his people. I've taken you out of Israel. So listen to what he says in chapter 19, verses 4 through 6, which I regard as the key verses of, of this book of the Bible. God speaking. 
You yourselves have seen what I did to the Egyptians and how I bore you on eagles' wings and brought you to myself. Now therefore, if you will indeed obey my voice and keep my covenant, you shall be my treasured possession among all peoples, for all the earth is mine, and you shall be to me a kingdom of priests and a holy nation. These are the words that you shall speak to the people of Israel. This is their identity, Moses. This is who they are. They will be for me a kingdom of priests. They'll all be priests. Oh, no, just Aaron's going to be your priest. Yeah, yeah, I know that within the nation, but the entire nation will be priests in that they will mediate the knowledge of the one true God to all the peoples of the earth. That's what I had told Abram in chapter 12, in Genesis 12. That's what I'm telling you now, 430 years after Abraham. I'm telling you that the people of Israel have a mission. They are to be my missionaries to let all the peoples of the world know that I am the one true and living God. Baal is not God. Moloch is not God. Chemosh is not God. Ra, the sun god of Egypt, is not God. I alone am God. And you all are going to display that to the nations by the way I protect you, the way I bless you, all that. You're going to let the whole world know. So this is the Great Commission repeated to Israel that, Lord, bless us that we might bless all the nations. We want all the peoples to praise you, God. Let all the peoples praise you. That's been the heartbeat of the people of God from the very beginning with Abraham and should be to the very end. But it didn't quite work out that way, as we'll see again in a minute. Psalm 113, verses 2 through th- um, two and 3 say, Blessed be the name of the Lord from this time forth and forever. Blessed be the name of the Lord from the rising of the sun to the place where it sets. Uh, how much of the earth would that be? That would be all of it. From the rising of the sun to the place where it sets, may the name of the Lord be praised. So that is the, the urgency, that's the burden of all the Old Testament. I want the whole world to know. Make a joyful noise to the Lord, all the earth, all the earth, all the nations. Let everything that has breath praise the Lord as the Psalter ends. So it's universal, it's, it's cosmic in scope. Um, and then Isaiah 26, verses 16 through 18. Again, speaking of the, uh, the purpose and the mission of Israel, Isaiah the prophet prays for the nation and says, Lord, forgive us. We have not done what you asked. We have been like a woman in childbirth, and we have brought forth wind. We, no baby was delivered. That instead of a baby coming out, hey, a baby's here, and the baby's crying, and we've, at, we've multiplied in the earth, and now Israel has brought in the nations, we haven't done diddly squat. We, we haven't fulfilled your great commission to us through Abraham and, and through these other psalms. We have not brought forth children from the world. It's even clearer in the NIV than it is in the ESV, but either translation gives you the clear idea. Isaiah is confessing, we have not fulfilled your mission, Lord. And we are ashamed of that, sorry for that. uh, Isaiah, just a little later in chapter 45, verse 23, looks forward to the day when every knee shall bow and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ will we, the, the New Testament will make use of it in that way. Every knee will bow before the Lord. But Paul 
twice, Romans 14 and again in Philippians 2 says, no, every knee will bow and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God. The one true God will be known all across the earth one day. One day the mission will be fulfilled. And then Isaiah 49 verses 5 and 6, verses that clearly are applied in the New Testament of Jesus and seem clearly to be applied to Jesus even when we're reading it on our own in the Old Testament. It's too small a thing for you to be my servant to turn back just the people of Jacob. No, I'm going to use you as my servant to be a light to all of the nations, that all of the peoples might know you. That's Old Testament. That's Isaiah 49, just as it was Psalm 113, Habakkuk 214, the image of the waters covering the sea and the knowledge of the Lord covering the earth, um, Exodus 19. So this is the Great Commission, and that's shown from all of these other verses. Uh, one quick aside, and then we need to push on, but the quick aside would be, why all these verses? I mean, I, let's just keep our finger on the text. Let's just say with Psalm 67 and just talk about that. Don't talk about all those other verses. I get that, and I hope I'm doing that. I hope we're, we're still on Psalm 67, but I am explaining Psalm 67 by looking at other passages of Scripture which make it clear. And I think I'm on good ground for doing that because in the Westminster Confession of Faith from the 17th century, um, those Scottish and British uh, church leaders that assembled at the Westminster Cathedral in order, to, um, in order to lay out what we believe, and it's still our profession of faith as Presbyterians in the 21st century, they said that Scripture is the only place that we're going to know infallibly what God teaches, what He wants from us. We've got to turn to the Bible. And the best way to understand the Bible, the only infallible interpretation of the Bible, is the Bible. So we need to know what does the Bible say about other parts. So whenever you come to a part of the scripture that is not very clear, you're on your most solid ground when you interpret it in light of other passages of scripture that are clear. And we recognize that there's a coherent whole here. It's all inspired by God. Therefore, we can use one part to make sense of another part. And, of course, we know, too, that we need to see Jesus through it because, as he himself taught us in Luke 24, he's the subject of all of it. Whether we're talking about the law or the prophets or the Psalms, all of it points to me, he said, to the disciples on the road to Emmaus and then later to the disciples assembled in the upper room. It's, it's all about me. So we use Scripture to interpret Scripture, and that's why I'm suggesting look at these other verses and see if they don't make clear what... Psalm 67, verses 3 to 5 are all about. And then we come to the cosmic conclusion in verses 6 and 7. May the earth flourish. That's what we're praying for because that's God's intention for this world. He made the world. He declared it very good. Satan introduced sin into the world and death through sin. But instead of destroying us, destroying Adam and Eve and starting over, God never did that. God decided that he would be gracious to human beings. And he would send a second Adam who would not fail the test in the garden, but he would be in the garden and he would pass the test. He would say, not my will be done, but thy will be done. And having passed that test and become an obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross, God raised him from the dead and gave new hope that there might now be a new humanity, both Jew and Gentile, united to him, and that God would make a new beginning on the earth. He would give to that new humanity a mission to take this gospel, this good news about Jesus, to all the peoples of the earth, and then one day he would restore the earth 
and make it flourish. Uh, Romans 4.13 has an interesting verse. It's, uh, it's, Paul's talking there about Abraham. Abraham is the model of faith. Abraham believed God, and that faith was reckoned to him as righteousness. So Paul's using Abraham to teach um, justification by faith alone, but he's also using Abraham to talk about the promise that Abraham would be the heir of the world. The world? No, he was, he, he was promised the land. Abraham was promised the land back in Genesis 12, Genesis 15, Genesis 17. No, Abraham was promised the whole world. The land of Israel was but a mere pale reflection of the ultimate destiny for Abraham and all those who are children of Abraham by virtue of their faith in Jesus. It's the whole world. The meek shall inherit the earth, not just the land, no, the earth. It's cosmic in its scope, the promises that were given to Abraham and the people of God in the Old Covenant, and we see them even more clearly displayed in the New Covenant. Um, so, may the earth flourish. Romans 8 is the well-known passage about the whole creation has been subjected to futility. It's under the curse of Genesis 3, and it groans until the sons of God come into their full inheritance when the earth will be restored and there will be a new heaven and a new earth in which righteousness dwells. So, may the earth flourish. Two ways the earth may flourish in Psalm 67. One, through fruitful filling that God would give abundant harvest, that the earth would yield its produce, that the, that the world would be fruitful. And then second, through fearful forming, that the earth would be under the order of God, that the whole earth, the ends of the earth, would fear him, meaning would revere him, would bow the knee before him, would recognize that the very beginning of human wisdom is to fear the Lord, to recognize that God is God and I am not, and I must bow before him. It's not quite the same thing as full faith in the Lord. There were God-fearers in the New Testament. We see them every place. They knew that, now there aren't all of these gods of the Roman pantheon or the Greek pantheon. There's one God. I'm getting that. And I'm attracted to this Judaism, to its monotheism and to its ethics and and I, I'm tempted that way, but I'm not yet ready to become a full-blown uh, full Israelite. I'm not, you know, um, I, I'm not ready to go the whole way. But I am a God-fearer. I'm standing there. I'm like a regular attender at church. I'm not a member yet, but I'm a regular attender there because I do fear the Lord. I revere the Lord. And one day the whole earth will revere the Lord, will be under his order and his rule, and it will find again its proper form. And the reason I point to those two parts is because, again, that puts us right back to Genesis 1, which begins, in the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. And then verse 2, and the earth was without form and empty, or without form and void. And in answer to that dilemma, God had three days of forming in which he forms the sky and the earth and the sea. And three days of filling puts the stars into the sky and the sun, the greater light to rule the day, the moon, the lesser light to rule the night. He puts the fish all through the sea and all the other sea creatures. And on the earth, he puts all kinds of land creatures. And at the culmination of it all, he puts human beings created in his own image and says, you are my vice regents over the creation. I want you to fill it. Be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth. Well, that will one day be our destiny. When we see this cosmic conclusion of God's blessing, there will be fruitful filling 
and there will be fearful forming. We see that in Genesis 1-2. And then if we turn to Revelation chapter 22, at the, the very last chapter of the Bible, we'll see again this picture of an abundant harvest with these trees on both sides of a river flowing from the throne of God. And we'll see all the nations bowing before him under his order, um, giving praise and glory to him. But we're not going to look there right now because we've got to leave time for applications. Applications. Bless us. That's how this psalm begins. That's how the psalm ends. Bless us. I want you to understand that us in terms of that great theologian, Tiny Tim, in A Christmas Carol. Just, just yell it out if you know that you remember that. How, what does Tiny Tim say about God's blessing at the end of the Christmas carol? God bless us. God bless us, every one. All right, so I'm looking around here this morning, and I'm, that's my prayer as we stop or we get ready to stop. We're not through yet, but we're getting there. We're going to stop. God bless us, every one. God's got an application for every one. And what would it be? It has to do with the good news. It has to do with the good news that has a baby beginning. And I use that quite literally, a baby beginning. Bad news occurs in Genesis 3. Adam blows it. He disobeys God, plunges the world into death. All kinds of death, not just the separation of the soul from the body, which is physical death, but the separation of the soul from itself, so psychological alienation, the separation of the soul from the other soul, from Eve, that they have alienation between them, and all kinds of marital discord and, and just relational discord in general occurs because of sin, ecological discord, and the whole world is um, set into futility. All that, that's, that's horrible. Um, but the blessing is that God is unraveling that that everything sad is becoming untrue, as um, Sam Gamgee puts it in the culmination of the Lord of the Rings, that there's going to be a cosmic conclusion in which all of that is overcome, and it begins for everyone, for each one of us, at that day when we believe the good news, that God so loved the world, that he gave his only begotten son, that whosoever believes in him should not perish, but have everlasting life, from death to life because of Jesus. Believe the good news. As I said, dying man teaching dying men. This may be your last chance. If you have never bowed the knee to the Lord God in repentance for your sin and in faith in his son, this is your invitation to do it today and to say, I believe the gospel and I'm going to stake my life on it from this day forth forevermore. I believe the gospel. Now, Others of you go, I've done that. I've done that. You're talking to guys that get up at 6 o'clock in the morning to come study the Bible. I'm not just, you know, a casual observer. No, I'm into this Christian thing. I've been a Christian for the last 15 years, for 20, for 30 years, for longer. Do you believe the gospel today? Some of us don't. Some of us struggle to believe it today. Today. And we struggle because it's too good to be true almost. The blessing idea of Scripture isn't just in Genesis 1 or in Genesis 12. It shows up in some other places, too, there. We see a picture of blessing. And we could pick a couple of different ones, but 
Think of Genesis 27 when Isaac is blessing the one he thinks is Esau. It's really Jacob stealing the blessing. That's not a good one to pick exactly. I like the blessing that Joseph gives to his 12 sons at the end of Genesis. But even more, I like the one he gives a chapter earlier to his grandsons, the sons of Joseph. They come to him. He gets to meet his grandsons. He thought, I'll never see Joseph again. He gets to see not only Joseph, he gets to see his grandsons. And he brings them, calls them forward. Here's the older one, Dad. You know, he's right here under your right hand. Here's the younger one. He's right here. I want you to put your hands on their head and bless them, Father. Bless them as our fathers have done, our grandfathers have done. Bless them. And so he, he brings them forward. He hugs them. He says, blessed be the boys. And in um, Genesis 47, he gives this blessing, but he crosses his hands. First thing. You know, you brought that one over here, but I'm going to cross my hands. No, 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 Father. And he tries to pull his hands off. He goes, no, this is the way it's going to be. And they're both going to be great. They're both going to be blessed. But this one who's younger is actually going to get the blessing. And you can see why Jacob might have wanted to do that. He was the younger of two twins. And so he, but anyway, he blesses him. He puts his hand on his head. He says, boys, you've got a great future in store for you. May God's blessings pour out of your life. Did your father or your grandfather ever do that for you? Maybe not literally. But you knew his hand was never on your head except to say, I love you, son. And you're awesome. And God created you just the way he created you. And I am really proud of you. I'm pleased with you. And I am praying to Almighty God that he might make your life great and use you to be a blessing to other people. You're, you're like a lion. You've always been like a lion. And in that, I've, I see that in you, and I affirm it, and I want you to flourish in that lion-like demeanor. Son, I love you. Have a great life. And then he keels over and dies. Well, that's the dramatic way it happens in the movie. It's kind of the way it happens here with uh, Jacob. He doesn't live much longer after he, he blesses all of his children, but he gets them all to the bedside. He blesses them all. Did your father or your grandfather ever do that for you? I doubt anybody's father or grandfather did it perfectly. I know they didn't do it perfectly. They may not have done it well. They may not have done it at all. And you feel like you've been operating under a deficit your whole life because you never really received that kind of blessing. You know the gospel says that you get that kind of blessing, not from your flawed earthly father, but from your perfect heavenly father who gives you that kind of blessing. And that's why at the end of every worship service you come to at Second and most other churches in town, the service isn't over until the minister, by the power invested in him as a minister of the gospel of Jesus Christ, by the presbytery or by the district or by the diocese or whatever the order is, by that power says, the Lord bless you and keep you. The Lord make his face shine upon you and be gracious to you. The Lord lift up his countenance on you and give you his peace. And he puts his hands like this. Well, what's that all about? You know, it's because he's putting a hand on every head and saying, the Lord your God wants you to know that. Before you leave, I know I've said some hard things, some challenging things, but I want you to believe this good news. You are saved by grace, not because of anything you did. I love you because I love you. Now go and bear fruit to the glory of my name and to the good of your own soul and to the blessing of the whole world that I've made. Do you believe that gospel today? 
how deep the Father's love for us, how vast beyond all measure, that he should send his only son to make a wretch his treasure. That's the gospel. Behold what manner of love the Father has given unto us that we should be called the children of God. And that is what we are. You have been blessed. Do you believe the gospel today? It'll change the way you live the rest of your day if you live in the light of that secure position in Christ. Share the gospel. Share it in word, share it in deed. Be the light of the world, be the salt of the earth. Follow the logic of Romans 10, 14 to 15 or 13. Every, whoever calls on the name of the Lord will be saved. Yeah, but how are they going to call upon the name of one they don't even believe in? And how are they going to believe in one of whom they have never even heard? And how are they going to hear unless someone preaches to them? And how are they going to preach to them unless they are sent? Follow that logic. There are people in your world today, you'll see them at work, you'll see them in your neighborhood, and they're never going to hear the gospel from me because they're never going to come to church on their own. It's highly unlikely, but they might from you in their sphere of influence. Will you open your mouth and let them know that they too could know that blessed acceptance from the judge of all the earth. And then when they die, they will not face a judge. They will face a loving father in heaven because they know Jesus. And they don't know him now. They've never heard of him. Really, they've gone through the motion of that. You might be that instrument. Share the gospel. Do not be ashamed of the gospel of the Lord Jesus Christ. It's the power of God for salvation to everyone who believes it. And then finally, expect the gospel. Expect it. Do you, I know you believe it, fine, maybe even sharing it, but are you expecting it today? Are you expecting this world to end up great? Good news, we win in the end. We win in the end. One of my favorite NCAA men's basketball moments is uh, the cardiac pack, the miracle with Jim Valvano, you know, like, yeah. The day that NC State beats mighty Houston Cougars, it'll be the day that pigs fly or elf. Like, it isn't going to happen. There's no way. I mean, they're a very low seed in the tournament. They've survived in advance, survived in advance, survived. They're not going to make it. And sure enough, many of you remember a crazy thrown-up shot from Derek Wittenberg from not half court, but not it's well beyond the three-point line, and he's shooting it going back. He doesn't even get it quite there, and they're going to lose, <laughs> except Lorenzo Charles is right there and takes it as a pass, which it wasn't. It was a missed shot, and jams it through right before the buzzer goes off, and NC State wins, and there's Jim Valvano running around looking for somebody to hug because he can't believe it. And a few years later, it's Jim Valvano at the ESPN ESPYs standing up to speak. He's got cancer. He doesn't have much longer to live. And he's trying to raise money for the Jimmy V Foundation. And we've heard it a million times. What does he say? Don't give up. Don't ever give up. It may be too late to save me and my cancer here. But as you give to this foundation, we can find a cure for cancer. We can save people. Down it. Don't give up. Don't ever give up. I don't know what trials you're facing today that make it hard for you to believe the gospel or to share the gospel, but I just want to make sure you're continuing to expect the gospel. It's hard. It's dark. I know it's difficult. Don't give up. Don't ever give up. Keep your eyes fixed on that blessed hope. Let's pray. Father, use this psalm to encourage our souls 
that we might use this psalm to encourage the souls of others. In Jesus' name and for his sake, amen.